one thing that we get to do that no other creature on the planet can do is that we get to add value by creating things. And I went from $40 million in revenue to watching everything that I had built for God get sold. You've got to make sure that your identity is solidly rooted in who you are in Christ and not in having money. I sold my company and I really had a hard time getting out of bed. Maybe been a long year, maybe been a hard life, maybe you're not alright. Faith-driven entrepreneurs to do what they want to do have to understand what God has given them. There's winners and learners, not winners and losers. I feel like I was chosen to be on this show for a reason and I had to do something. Like we are addicted to comfort. And he's called me into really difficult positions. That's what he's told me to walk into. People like you, people like me. This is where we all find grace. Come on now. Entrepreneurship can be a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. This podcast and the whole ministry seeks to equip you, the faith-driven entrepreneur, to seize the unique opportunities that God has placed in front of you and overcome the challenges that life will throw your way. These are the stories of how he takes broken things and makes them new. Come for the podcast, stay for the community. Welcome to Faith Driven Entrepreneur. Welcome back, everyone, to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur podcast. Today's podcast might feel like a movie you've seen. Well, in a second, you'll understand why. Because our guest is Mark Whitaker. Mark is an Ivy League PhD and the highest ranking executive of any Fortune 500 company in U.S. history to become a whistleblower. He is responsible for uncovering the Archer Daniels Midland price-fixing scandal in the early 1990s. His undercover work with the FBI during the ADM scandal was the inspiration for the major motion picture The Informant, starring Matt Damon as Mark Whitaker. And also, the Discovery Channel documentary, Undercover, is based on his story. Today, Mark is executive director of the T-Factor Initiative at Coca-Cola Consolidated, Inc. Mark served as COO of Christian Businessmen's Connection, that's CBMC, from 2013 to 2019. And he was the COO and chief science officer from 2006 to 2013 at Cypress Systems, Incorporated. That's a California biotech company where Mark still serves on their advisory board. Drawing from his unique history, Mark provides a -a one-of-a-kind insight into corporate ethics, corporate greed, and the warning signs of a flawed corporate leadership. And he would be the first to tell you that his story is one of God's redemption, not his own. We're excited to have Mark join us today, and we think you're going to love this episode. So let's just dive in. Henry? Welcome back to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. Joined as always, or most of the time, 98% of the time, with both William and Rusty. Brothers, good morning. Good morning. It's good to be here on that 98%. I hate missing those other ones. It is sad. It's good when we're all here together like this. I got sad the other day because I sent somebody one where it wasn't the three of us, and I got sad. I was like, this is good. You need to listen to it, but I'm, but I'm a little sad about it. Who well, you know, missing? I missed the one we had with Donald Miller. And, you know, people say, oh, gosh, I love your podcast. The one with Donald Miller is great. 
well, is that is that because Donald Miller is great or is it because like I like drag it all down? I mean, I'm really happy we've got Mark Whitaker. I'm glad that three of us are together and that we've got Mark Whitaker in the house today. Mark, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Mark, as we continue our banner, of course, you found yourself on the Faith Driven Entrepreneur podcast, and we've been really fortunate and blessed to see the continued growth of this movement that you have now been in and have led with Frank at T-Factor. And we were just talking on just before we went on live about how God is working through the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Ministry. You know, when we started five years ago, we start off with the idea of a podcast and that's grown And over the last several years, we've been able to interview some really neat people, none cooler than Mark Whitaker, nobody that has had somebody like Matt Damon play their life. By the way, before we get into what I was just going to say, how happy were you that they didn't choose Steve Buscemi or somebody else? I mean, I mean, I Steve Buscemi is great. You know, is my identical twin, so I think they chose the right guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, I mean, that's amazing. We've never had anybody that's been played by Matt Damon on the program. That's for darn sure. But what has happened is there's been this great movement of God through a whole bunch of really great ministries like T-Factor, in our own situation, we have these FDE groups. So over time, if you've listened to this a while, you've understood that there are these 12 marks that unite faith-driven entrepreneurs. There's the call to create, our identity in Christ, faithfulness versus willfulness, the biblical message of generosity. And they are all these common DNA values that are part of this broader movement that we're all in. T-Factor, C12, convene all these great ministries. And one of the things I love about T-Factor, by the way, is how you call attention to some of these other great ministries that are out there. And so one of the things that we've had is this foundational group that has been able to go through virtually with people where you can get in a cohort of 12 to 15 other faith-driven entrepreneurs from around the world to look at this common DNA that makes up a faith-driven entrepreneur before you find yourself getting better trained through a T-Factor or a C12 or a convene or somebody like that. And so we've been celebrating that. It's been awesome. My hope as I record this in the studio audience is that nobody can hear the 140-pound Newfoundland that is barking ferociously at my door, 24 inches away from my face. I hope they, that my microphone no, doesn't capture that. They can't hear it. We can, but they can't hear it. <laughs> yeah, what, what makes you feel better? Yes or no? I <laughs> know yeah, they do. All right. That's what happens when you uh, are recording during COVID times. So without further ado, Mark, thank you very, very much for being on the program, for being willing to share your story, some of the things that many people have seen through the movies, and yet so much more, too, about what you're doing at T-Factor. Having experienced it myself, having gone through the program and seen how world-class it is, I'm going to get into why I think that, why William thinks that, why Rusty knows that to be true. We want to go ahead and get started with you, as we do with every one of our guests, to get a flyover of your background. And you've got an incredible story to tell, and I want you to tell it. We want to make sure that we leave enough room at the end to talk about T-Factor because it's so applicable and it's changing. God is using T-Factor to change the way that companies, large and small, think about bearing witness to their faith and the reason why they manufacture and distribute the products they do. And you do it so well and help people to do it better than anybody else I've seen, the practical, the theological, but then the very, very practical. It's just awesome. Okay, but start us. Who is Mark Whitaker? Yeah, I grew up in uh, Cincinnati area, and I was a gifted student, very driven, driven. I was have a bachelor's and master's from Ohio State University, a PhD in biochemistry from Cornell University, and had full scholarship for eight years. The only child out of four to go to college in my family. My mom said I went and got a degree for all of them. 
So a very driven, especially during the time when I was at Cornell and I was at Cornell and get my PhD starting at age 22. The average is 32. So I was about 10 years younger than all the other PhD students in biochemistry. And I just remember it's when the whole biotech industry was exploding. There was a shortage of PhD biochemists to lead biotech companies around the world. And I wasn't a Christian during that time. So I'm really sharing a story of selfish leadership, not servant leadership. I mean, this was a time of self-absorption, self-focus. Mm-hmm. And all I heard during that time at Cornell was, boy, we're going to make millions of dollars getting a PhD in biochemistry. And at 22, I just, that's all I thought about becoming CEO of one of the largest biotech or pharmaceutical companies in the world. So it was a very driven student. And I did become, by the age 32, I became a divisional president of the largest biotech division really in the world of ADM, Archer Daniels Midland, fermentation, making ethanol, 70% of the country's ethanol, lactic acid that's in Campbell's soup, citric acid, it goes into Coca-Cola and Sprite and beverages, and all these were made from fermentation, and I led that division at ADM, Archer Daniels Mm -hmm. Midland. I was 32 at that time. This would have been 1989. This would have been 32 years ago, so this is half my life ago, but during that time, I can remember my first week working there. I was there eight years as divisional president. But during my first week, the CEO gave me a corporate jet. The seven top executives had their own jet. I was number four ranked executive at ADM, number four out of 30,000 employees. We were 70 billion revenue, and we were the 56th largest company on the Fortune 500 then. In 1989. And I got obsessed with that lifestyle. I bought the CEO's home my first month. He was 75, wanted to move to something smaller. Our president was 69, and here I was 32. And I tell you what, I was Justin Bieber before Justin Bieber. And I had the jet, bought the CEO's home, a 13,000 square foot home, eight car garage. And that became my entire life focus that I was thinking at that time in my life, if there's a heaven, this is it. And But it was all selfish leadership, self-absorbed. I was being mentored by selfish leaders. And basically, as I'm working there, after a couple of years, they saw me as family, and they started bringing me into some of the kind of the hidden parts of the business, the international cartels, the price fixing, because the two leaders above me were so much older than me, they started mentoring me to take their place. And they started bringing me into their international cartel price fixing scheme. And I ended up sharing that with my wife. I'm two years with a company. They then saw me as part of the family. So they started kind of bringing me into things they hadn't shared before. And then I shared it with my wife. And it's amazing how life changed in my early 30s, two years during the time I was at ADM, when my wife basically turned me into the FBI. And it became the largest price fixing case in U.S. history. So talk to us about that, because I'm familiar enough, of course, with this story. I'm fascinated by this because you're still married and happily married. And 42 years married and a miracle of God that our marriage survived. And just talk us through that. That must have been an enormous amount of friction. And talk to us about her approach, how you guys dealt with it, because this is a everybody that's a faith-driven entrepreneur, not everybody's married. I should be careful here, but many of us are married. And we try to check our ambition. We try to be great at being a partner with our spouse. We expect complete support and understanding. And in this case, she saw something more important than just blindly supporting what her spouse was doing and had no problem in challenging you for it. 
Can you just talk about that dynamic a bit? Yeah, and I will say this, uh, Henry. She became a Christian at age 30. So we would have been at this time in our lives 34, and she yeah. was 33 a year younger than me. She was in the seventh grade, and I was in the eighth grade when we met, went to our proms together. So I've known her most of my life prior to this point. She would have been 33 then, myself 34. And I do want to make it clear, she became a Christian at 30. I became a Christian at 40. So she was yeah. a Christian 10 years before me. And she did not like who I was becoming. She didn't feel like I was who she fell in love with in high school and college because she's driving a 10 year old Jeep and I'm driving, I have an eight car garage and I have a Ferrari and a BMW and Mercedes. I would have bought her any of those cars herself, but those things didn't mean anything to her. And Mm -hmm. she saw that I had so much focus on that. I was not focusing on her. I wasn't focusing on God at all. Wasn't focusing on her three children, three young children. And she didn't like who I was becoming. So we started having this conversation two years into the company, and she noticed that I was working even a lot more at nights at this point. This would have been November 1992, and she noticed I was working a lot at nights, and I told her, I said, I have to be on the phone at nights because I'm talking to our competitors because 8 o'clock in Decatur, Illinois at night is 8 o'clock in the morning in Japan, Singapore, South Korea, because a lot of our competition at ADM with Southeast Asia. And she asked me, Ginger asked me, she said, well, why are you talking to your competition? And I told her about how I'm being mentored to take over this cartel. And that's when the world changed. She asked me if it was legal. And I said, well, it's not legal, but they tell me everybody does it. You can't be in a commodity business without doing price fixing. And then she started saying, well, who pays for this billion dollars a year? Not a million, but a billion dollars a year fraud, because I told her that was the number and it's been going on for 12 years. She said, well, who pays for that? I said, the consumers pay for that when they go to the grocery store, when they buy Kellogg cereal or a beverage or Pillsbury or Kraft, those ingredients are price fixed. So I said, they'll pay five extra dollars, maybe out of 50. So it's not much. And then she got to her about her grandma on Social Security, $200 a week, is paying these high grocery bills because of this international cartel. And she just Flat out told me she couldn't live with it. And she said she was going to pray about it. And literally after praying about it for about two hours, she came out and she said, Mark, God led me to a decision. I'm going to turn you into the FBI and we're going to do it today. Wow. And my life changed that day, November 5th, 1992. What was your first reaction, Mark? My first reaction, I said, Ginger, I work for a billionaire. I report to a billionaire. He owns 5% of the 56th largest company in America, $70 billion company. I said, this company, he's best friends with President Clinton and talks on a weekly basis with President Clinton, flew to President Nixon's funeral on President Clinton's plane. I said, this company will destroy us, will totally destroy us. And I also said I could go to prison for breaking antitrust laws, but I'm more concerned what the company will do to us than the government. And she said, you know what, Mark, my CEO is bigger than your CEO. And I said, well, Ginger, who's your CEO? And she said, Jesus. And I said, I can't see or feel Jesus, but our CEO lives seven miles down the road. We're living in the home we bought from him and they will destroy us. And she said, God will protect us. And this is what we're going to do, Mark. And we're going to do it today. Now it didn't end there either. So she continued to provide counsel and around plea agreements and things like that. And so she stayed actively involved about what she thought was principled. And so there's more to that story too. Yeah, there is. I mean, in that day, we're sitting with the FBI for four hours. She's sitting with me. 
I was very hesitant, obviously, to tell them about a, a billion dollar fraud that's been going on for 12 years. Now, I was only involved for seven months because that's when I started being mentored to take it over. So the case started, you know, a decade before I even joined the company. But she started sharing all the things that I didn't tell the FBI to the FBI. And at the end of a four hour discussion with the FBI, they had Janet Reno on the phone. They had William Sessions, the director of the FBI. I mean, this became this at that time, it's now the third largest in the world. It was the largest price fixing case in the world, started by my wife, a stay-at-home mom. And so we had a choice that day for me to either get arrested or the fact that I was only seven months involved, something going on 12 years, or be the informant. And I chose that day, November 5th, 1992, to wear a wire for the FBI instead of being arrested. And that's how I became an informant. And you did choose that day. Can you like, you mentioned specific dates and times. I'm just curious, like it all happened in one day. It did, but there was no choice. I mean, with the FBI, we're either going to arrest you, you're going into a county jail, or you're agreeing to wearing a wire starting tomorrow. And I mean, that it was that black and white, and I sure wasn't interested in being arrested. So I said, yeah, I'll wear a wire reluctantly, and I sure didn't want to do it. But I met them at six in the morning the next day. They shaved my chest, put microphones on my chest, tape recorder on my back. And then I ended up wearing a wire for them every Monday through Friday for three years, from 1992 to 1995, three full years, every weekday. And not to fast forward pieces, but, uh, you know, ultimately you said three years. So it came to a conclusion, right? I assume they had enough information to prosecute the case. And then there were still consequences for you even though you you cooperated, right? Yeah, when the FBI was wiring me up, and there's a really detailed documentary on my website by Discovery Channel where the three real FBI agents interview with Ginger and I. And, and, you know, to be honest with you, it's so much more accurate than the movie because it's the real agents and it shows the seriousness of the case. And they talk about, the FBI do, in that documentary, how if I was caught wearing a wire, they would have killed me. These guys would have killed me. So I was risking my life for this. And they also talk about how I had full immunity. Within a couple months, they were so appreciative of what I was doing, they gave me full immunity. Now, as the never to go to jail, never to do one day in the prison system. And within the last few months, when they were telling me it was the last six or seven months of the case, I started thinking, well, gosh, how am I going to keep this standard of living that I had? Who's going to hire somebody that wore a wire against their own company for three years? One would hire a felon, a company would, before they would hire someone that wore a wire against their own company. So I thought there's no job, no position. I did all that college education. By this time, I'm 38 years old after wearing a wire for three years. So I looked at my stock options and looked at kind of what we had, If you know, when because I knew the company was going to fire me once they knew I was the informant. And I had $9 million in stock options and already had quite a few millions before that too, but $9 million that I could exercise in another year and a half. They were five-year set of stock options, and our stock price was exploding. But I knew I'm not going to be able to exercise them because I'm going to be fired when they learn that I'm the informant, when the case is coming to an end and the FBI start prosecuting. So I looked at that $9 million, and again, after wearing a wire three years, I wasn't thinking clearly. I lost 60 pounds wearing a wire. People at work thought I had cancer. I was literally falling apart. Prison was a cakewalk compared to wearing a wire for three years. So what I did do, I went and wrote five checks to myself for the $9 million, thinking that my stock options is a great defense because they owe me that. I risked my life for the FBI. Sure, I'm exercising them early, 
I thought a jury would be sympathetic that if it ever came up, but I'm really taking what's owed to me because this is all I'm going to have for a while. Who's going to hire somebody, like I said, that wore a wire? So I wrote five checks for $9 million, not thinking clearly. And so I end up at the result of that. The day that ADM, the raid happened and 70 FBI agents raided the world headquarters of ADM and ADM learned that I was the mole, the informant, they called the FBI immediately. The $9 million was okay when I was with them. But once they knew that I was the enemy, they called immediately and said, hey, he's no white knight informant. He wrote five checks to himself for $9 million. And so I then became a defendant in the case and no longer just a witness. I was a witness and a defendant, not a defendant for the price fixing, but a defendant in how I managed and handled that $9 million. It became a not exercise in the stock option. Wow. So that, wow. that's how I started then becoming a target of the case and not just a witness. And how did that end? How did your defense end in the case? Well, I tell you, to exercise your stock options year early, that's <laughs> not a good, it's not a good defense. Jury, definitely sympathetic. Judge, definitely sympathetic. But there broke laws. I mean, there's laws regarding surrounding stock options and SEC violations, right. and I broke those laws. But the FBI agents were so sympathetic. They came to our house and met with Ginger and I, and they said, Ginger and Mark, we're going to do everything we can to get you the best plea deal we can get you. Because we know you made this poor decision under stress, and we right. know you're looking at you're not going to be able to make a living anymore. And you were trying to take something that you thought was, you know, exercise something you thought was owed to you, which would have been owed to me if it would have been the normal course of time. And, you know, and I wasn't fired for being an informant because ADM did fire me that very day when they learned I was the mole, obviously. Sure. Of course. And so they went to the prosecutors and got me a six-month plea deal, a Martha Stewart sentence, a deal of a lifetime. I would have went to prison at age 38 and came out at 38, six months. And my lawyer sharing this with me said, Mark, you had 48 hours to sign it. The prosecutors and the agents are so supportive of what you did. They know you made bad decision under pressure. They feel they should have never had you wear a wire for three years. They feel like they took you undercover too long. They saw that you were falling apart, but they wanted the evidence so bad, they kept you wearing a wire. And for that, you get a six-month plea agreement. And Ginger begged me to sign it. And I looked at Ginger and I said, Ginger, you're the reason why I'm in this mess in the first place. I had to wear a wire only because of you, Ginger. And for that, I'm going to do the opposite you want me to do. And I ripped up that plea agreement, fired that lawyer. Again, not a Christian during this time. I mean, this is selfish, selfish leadership, self-absorbed, self-focused. And I ripped up that plea agreement, went to the courts through three years and got an eight and a half year sentence instead when I had a six month sentence in my hand. Wow. My own worst enemy every step of the way. Wow. Wow. So you've mentioned a few times you weren't a Christian during that process. Where did God get you? How did he get you? Well, I tell you, when I knew I had eight and a half years to do on a 10-year sentence, there's no parole in the federal system. The judge gave me five years off for paying the $9 million back. I would have had a 15-year sentence. So that gave a 10. You get a year and a half off good behavior. There's no, you get 15% off good behavior. There's no parole in the federal system. That's been taken out since the early 80s. So I had an eight and a half year sentence. I was so depressed knowing now that I could have had six months. I really even had immunity. I went from immunity to six months and now eight and a half years that I pulled my car in one of those garages and tried to kill myself. 
And it became big news on CNN and all the national news, informant, largest price fixing case in history, suicide attempt. And two people read about that. First was a guy named Ian Howes from Raleigh, North Carolina, who was a CFO of a pharmaceutical company and also a member of CBMC Christian Businessmen Connection. And he reached out to me as a stranger. And I'll never forget, he came to my house and he said, Mark, prison's going to be the beginning of your life and you're going to find your true self, your true purpose of your life in this journey you're ready to start. And I thought it was the craziest thing I ever heard. I'm getting ready to go to prison for eight and a half years. I just attempted to take my own life a month ago hospitalized for a month, treated for post-traumatic stress disorder, wearing a wire for three years before they sent me home, seven months before I go to prison. And he's telling me this is the beginning of my life. And I remember telling Ginger that, and she fell to her knees. And she said, thank God, God sent somebody, Mark. She said, I pray you listen to this man. I've been trying to tell you for 10 years, and I've prayed for you for 10 years, and I pray you listen to this man. And that's when Ian Howe started introducing me to God, discipling, mentoring me, and really introduced me to God through the study called Operation Timothy, a tool that CBMC Christian Businessmen Connection has. And then my second week in prison, a man named Chuck Colson shows up. I didn't even know who Chuck Colson was at the time. He read about me in the Washington Post, and he said he saw a lot of himself in reading my story, himself 30 years earlier. So he showed up. And I remember I told him about Ian Howes. He said, Mark, have you given your life to Jesus yet? And I said, I haven't yet, Chuck. And he said, well, why? I said, Chuck, I have eight years of education, college education. I had professors at Cornell, one of them won a Nobel Prize in physics. And they said, and some of the key professors I had said, if you believe in God, you can't be in my class. If you believe in God, you can't be a PhD scientist. I heard eight years of evolution, Big Bang Theory, Darwinism, all the things you learn in sciences at a secular school, that there is no God. And I just can't erase that. And I'll never forget Chuck saying this, my second week in prison. He said, Mark, do you think that there's a scientist, a PhD scientist, believes in God? And I said, I don't think there's any. And he started showing me book after book and article after article of some of the best-known PhD scientists that believe in God. And that's where he started breaking that down for me to break that science block. So I have a question for you. Is Ian Howes, is he ethnically British? Yes, he is. Okay, so if you're the person that God uses to bring Mark Whitaker to faith, you know, one of the more famous Christians is out there. I mean, the whole story, I mean, this is world-famous stuff. If you're somebody who leads and brings that person... Do you think that you'd be tempted to share that with others? I would. Absolutely. I I feel God. I feel since I became a Christian 24 years ago, 1998, about a year after Ian Howes' disciple, about four months after Chuck Colson discipling me, I feel God wants me to share it with the world. So here's what I'm getting at here is that I know Ian Howes and I know him pretty well. I've known him for a dozen years. We've done a lot of things together, and I've never known that he was the Ian House. Don't you think that at some point in time over the hundred interactions I've had with Ian, he'd say, yeah, I'm going to the premiere of the movie, or we're watching The Informant again tonight on Family Movie Night, or I mean, something, (laughs) nothing. Well, I know one thing. He has shared on stage with me. We've shared on stage. I'm sure he hasn't backed away from an opportunity to honor what he's doing. But you know, one of the things that's always impacted me about Ian, very humble, is his humility. It's never about him. 
No. And you know what? I'm not that humble. If God used me to leave Mark Whitaker to faith, I mean, it would show up on like my LinkedIn. It would be on my, I don't know. <laughs> I got to find a tattoo or something. That's amazing. I can't believe, I know Ian. I've heard you Great mention guy. Ian Howes before, and I just presumed, I mean, it's a relatively common name. But when you said today, Raleigh, North Carolina, I'm like, wait a second. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Okay. Well, that all, all came right. together. Back to our well, regularly scheduled program. We're back. I, back I, in. I want to pause on that for one second because it is always the most staggering part when I hear your story, Mark, of just, and, you know, and I, I feel like it's in a lot of our stories. There's a person, right? There's a person that heard God's voice and they listened and they acted. And that's both for salvation and for entrepreneurship. I think it's both, right? I mean, all of these stories, whether it's God calling you to do something in entrepreneurship or God calling you to go talk to someone about himself. I'm always staggered that you can narrow it down to Ian. You can narrow it down to Chuck and mm-hmm. then here, you know, Chuck read a newspaper article and he could have thought about it and they could have thought I should reach out to that guy. That would be fun. Maybe I'll talk to him one day, but they didn't just think it because I'm sure a lot of people read that newspaper article and thought it and those two took it and did it. And that's a trait of great evangelists. It's a trait of great entrepreneurs. I know I have that person in my life. You know, Daniel is like the guy that just, didn't stop, you know, and he just stayed with me. Anyway, I just wanted to pause on that for a second. Just the power of one person listening to God's voice and taking action on it. I mean, to the point where we look back and we both got interviewed a lot when the movie came out in 09. It's not a Christian movie. It ends with us going to prison. It doesn't show the last 25 years of her journey. The director was an atheist, so he wasn't interested in the faith journey. But I will tell you this, we get asked often, And I remember my wife on CBS News, and I was being interviewed in California, and I was with Matt Damon, and Ginger was being interviewed in New York, and they asked her, well, what would have happened if your husband signed the six-month plea agreement? She said, I was so mad, she said, during that time. It was the only time in my life I wanted to kill him. Divorce wasn't an option, but murder was, and I wanted (laughs) to kill him for not signing that. But she said, looking back, all those decades— she said, we all feel, Mark, her, our adult children now, thank God I didn't sign that six-month sentence because I would have never listened to Ian Howes and Chuck Colson with a six-month sentence, that I needed to be broken. I needed to be at the end of myself, and the eight-and-a-half-year sentence puts you at the end of yourself. I bet. So we I thank bet. God now that I didn't, because I would have never listened to Ian. If he showed up and I had six months, I would have thought, boy, six months, I'm out of here. I don't need to hear what you got to say. Wow. But eight and a half years, you're looking for hope. You're broken. Wow. So you have talked about ego and greed yeah. as being drivers here. I'm curious. I mean, when all this started and you're rocketing up and then ego and greed are, you know, are the drivers and you get this first glimpse of this is wrong. I'm going to make the presumption that you knew it was wrong or you learned it was wrong. Is ego and greed being the drivers, were there other points in your life before where you might have said, hmm, this is wrong, but I think I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it anyway. And what I'm getting at, Mark, is that, you know, the old adage is the person who robs the bank, you know, that's not the first theft they've ever done, right? That there's been a path. I will say this. And Ginger would say this, who's known me since I was in eighth grade, and other people who know me, I would not have taken an apple from a neighbor that even the company I was with before ADM, two years in New York, four years in Germany, a company called Avonik, and I was vice president of acquisitions and mergers in Germany. It was West Germany at that time, but Frankfurt, Germany now. And 
very ethical mentors. I was literally being groomed to do the right thing. And then we were doing a joint venture with ADM and I got to meet the CEO and the COO of ADM by the position I had by doing this joint venture. And eventually the CEO said, well, why don't you come work for us at ADM? You won't have all this bureaucracy. And I said, I'm six years here, two in New York, four in Germany. I can't imagine leaving this company. And then he started telling me what he would offer. And it was about ninefold higher. You know, he asked me what my earning. I said it was about $350,000 if you add up the stock options bonuses and total compensation in 1989. He said, Mark, I'll give you a $350,000 base salary, but I'll give you stock options and bonuses that will take you to $3 million a year instead of $350,000 a year. And I said, where do I sign? After I spent an hour with him telling him I wouldn't, there's no way I would leave this company. And then I told my wife we're moving from Frankfurt to Decatur, Illinois. And she said, why? Why would we do that? And she said, you didn't do it just for the money, did you? So I said, it's a great opportunity. So we moved to Decatur, where I became divisional president of ADM. And the first two years, I think, very ethical. I mean, I think it was we were on a very ethical track. And one day, the vice chairman came back and he gave me a $100,000 check, April 92, $100,000 check. And 25,000 shares of stock. And that it was not an option. It was a warrant. So it was about a million dollars that day. And it wasn't a normal performance review. So I thought it was kind of odd that I'm getting this. But I was, you know, and I wasn't going to chase him down and give it back. And about an hour later, he came back and he said, Mark, we see you as family now. We're going to start bringing you into some things you haven't seen. And he started telling me about the cartel that they're running. And I said, well, that's not legal. You can't do that. And he started saying, Mark, these laws that the politicians put on the books in the late 1800s, antitrust laws, they know nothing about business, those politicians. This law should be in the books. You can't be in the commodity business without doing this. And I started listening to that story and I started rationalizing, thinking this is the way business is really done. And I start thinking, he's vice chairman and been there over 30 years. I'm still only a few years from getting my PhD at Cornell. They know a lot more than me, I felt. I wanted to continue to move up the corporate ladder so bad, I accepted it and started rationalizing it. And that's when I got to the fork of the road and my life changed. Right, right. I should have walked away, but I didn't. Yeah. So I hear, okay, so there's a line in there. You know, I wanted it so bad. Yes. Right. I wanted it so bad. And so, you know, entrepreneurs, we want it so bad. Right. We give up so much for the success of our venture and all those things. And when success comes, when the definition of winning of the world, you know, we get fed, you know, I want it so bad. Now I want more. So ego and greed can become all consuming. So talk to our listeners about you know, how to shield ourselves from ego and greed. And, you know, the lesson that you've learned, not only by turning your life over to God, but how to, how to deal with that. Cause it just doesn't just go away. Yeah. Well, I tell you how God's led me. You got to pray every morning and you got to pray, say, God, keep me out of my own way and be spirit led in all the decisions you make. But what was life changing for me in prison, my first year becoming a Christian, but having eight years left of prison and Chuck Colson said, well, now what are you going to do with your life? He's discipling me, visiting me a day a month on a Saturday, spending time with me and mentoring me and pouring into me. And he says, Mark, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, I don't know what I can do in prison for eight years. And he said, well, Mark, what about what we're going through? How about like I'm discipling you? 
where in the world are people more helpless and hopeless than federal prison? What about you discipling them? You know, Matthew 28, 19, plant seeds, 2 Timothy 2, 2, one-on-one discipleship. What about evangelism and discipleship for you, Mark, within the prison system? And that's when I started discipling guys in prison. $20 a month I'm earning in prison. After $3 million a year for eight years, I'm $20 a month for eight and a half years. And I started discipling guys, helping them get their GEDs. Some of them learn how to read. And I will tell you something, Rusty, those become some of the most productive years of my life in federal prison. And that's what changed my life when I got out now 16 years ago. I saw how rewarding it was to serve others. And it wasn't rewarding being a selfish leader. Mm, that's good. So, I know Henry's yeah, got a question here, but that may be you know, one of the best antidotes to ego and greed that one can have, which is to turn it over, first of all, to the Lord, and secondly, then to begin to serve others. Because it's very hard to hang on to ego and greed when you're serving others. So Mark, a way you're serving others is through your leadership at T-Factor. And I've got a full head of steam about T-Factor because I went through it about four weeks ago and it was just so well done. There are a number of people who are listening to podcasts who are, if they're like me, had made presumptions for quite some time that you got to be really, really, really super careful about sharing your faith in the workplace. And so careful, in fact, that you probably shouldn't do it. You should probably just err on the side of not doing it. Maybe throw some breadcrumbs in there. Maybe you can hire a chaplain, but you know, gosh, there's just having it integrated into your story and into the activities you do. You're better off not doing it because surely there must be laws against it. What I loved about T-Factor was your ability to kind of go through all of that and not just a challenge like, hey, you know, you're not man enough or woman enough to just kind of persevere, man's person enough to kind of persevere that and you're a bunch of theological wimps. No, you had a very practical way towards approaching how to do it legally, winsomely. Just tell us about T-Factor. Tell us about the ministry, how it started, and then practically what an engagement with T-Factor looks like. Well, the, the purpose of T-Factor is to transform workplace cultures around the world for good, for God, and for growth. And it started 22 years ago. We're a 119-year-old company, Coca-Cola Consolidated. We're the bottling side. We're a different company than Coca-Cola Company in Atlanta. And this started 22 years ago with our CEO and chairman, Frank Harrison. And Frank Harrison started integrating faith and work 22 years ago. It started with chaplaincy at one of our plant sites. Now we have chaplaincy at 102 plant sites. And then we started discipleship and mentoring about 10 years ago using a program by Reggie Campbell called Radical Mentoring. Now we've been doing that for 10 years. Reggie just passed away last year. And what an incredible man again. Wonderful guy. And Kevin Harris is who replaced him, a wonderful guy too, just a wonderful ministry. And we started prayer groups 22 years ago and Bible studies. We changed our purpose statement to honor God in all we do by serving others and pursue excellence and grow profitably. But it is that to honor God in all we do and everything we do. And what we share at T-Factor is, is where it's kind of the outward expression of what we're doing internally. We share for 22 years and our lawyers share that it's legal. As long as you don't require someone to see a chaplain or to join a Bible study, it needs to be optional. They need to be able to volunteer for it. You can't require it. So our lawyers share. Frank Harrison shares the vision he had 20 years ago. Our COO, David Katz, shares about how we execute it and how we implement it within our organization. And then we have others, VP of HR and, and our senior VP and vice chairman of giving. 
they share. And what we do, we share that you can do all of it. We're a public company on the NASDAQ. You know, we have 16,000 employees, teammates, and you can do all this legally. You can have a purpose statement to honor God in all you do. You can have Bible studies, prayer groups, chaplaincy, radical mentoring or discipleship. All these things we have, and you could do it all legally. And not only should you do it for God to honor him, it's also good for your business. It also impacts retention rates and absenteeism, and it's just good for your culture. People love to bring their whole self to work. And I've met non-Christians in the company and they say, Mark, I love what we do. They say that some of them aren't even a Christian, but they say they love the environment. They love a company that gives in the community where their plant site is, where they're working at. They love a supervisor. They love serving them and being an advocate for them and help develop them. So even the non-Christians love it, but it's also planting seeds for these non-Christians. And some of them are going to become Christians through this journey. Yeah. And you talk about, you know, how you had the different executives within the company. What I love also is that you have your counsel and attorney go ahead and go through and, and just pepper in. Well, well, can you do this? Can you do this? And just the way you present it, all of a sudden you walk away from it. It's like, oh my goodness, now I have no excuses. And yet not that I'm guilted into it, but now I can just, I can be more of my true self in a way that I can really love on my employees. And when I look at Coca-Cola bottling's stock price, when I look at your employee retention, because you talk about it, it's not just a Christian ministry. That's a big core of it, but it's also for growth. The way that you take what you have and you've been able to grow so much because you've got this foundation of culture that's based on excellence and giving and loving on your employees that includes spiritual integration. Now you've got this platform for growth. And so that's all part of it. And it's not a prosperity gospel, but all of a sudden you spend the day with T-Factor and actually it works out to be four or five hours. You get a sense of that's a blueprint for growth that I can follow. And it happens not at the expense of these biblical values, but because of them. Absolutely. And we'd love to, right? We do them each quarter. We have 250 leaders at each event, the virtual events. And we love to invite your audience to join us at T-Factor. Outstanding. Yeah, and then if I just throw another recommendation, it is incredible. I've gone through it twice. Uh, so it's something you can always learn something new. You go through um, it because they send a gift basket of Coca-Cola products ahead of time. <laughs> I do enjoy the gift basket. Uh, it's no comment on whether or not that's the reason I go through it twice. <laughs> but the trail mix and the free Coke is not a bad thing. And to tell my wife, water. <laughs> it's sunny water, yeah. but to tell my wife I have to drink it uh, to go to an event is it's good. It's good for my, it's good for my marriage. It's good for my soul. So I will accept that, but it's amazing. I'd love what Henry mentioned the bad, the tactical piece at the end, right? It's not just pie in the sky, hopefulness. Hey, let's like get together and, and hope, Hey, let's get really tactical on someone. And I think even, I forget the exact stat. I'm sure you know it, but 70 some odd percent, 90 some odd percent of people make one significant change after going to T-Factor. Our average about 68%. Within 90 days, 68% of our attendees do something different, integrating something they learned from T-Factor that they didn't do before. Right. Which is an incredibly high percentage, right? We've all gone to conferences. We all go to things to actually like be presented with tactical, practical solutions to something that can, you can implement is amazing. So love the organization. You know, if anyone needs to know more, obviously Henry and I've been through it, we can tell you more. And I'm sure Mark would love to tell you more too. And, and Melissa as well. Yeah, absolutely. Before we come to a close, anything else about T-Factor, how to get in touch with you guys or how to understand more about the program that you want to share with our audience? 
Well, the best way, you know, is my email address is, I don't know if you post anywhere, but it's mark.whitaker at Coke Consolidated, C-O-K-E, consolidated.com, mark.whitaker, W-H-I-T-A-C-R-E. But feel free to share that email address and love to invite them to a future event. We do them in March, June, September, and December each quarter. And they're international. We've got about 20% yeah. of our audience from outside of the country. But I do want to emphasize what Henry said. It is to honor God in all we do to serve others, pursue excellence, and grow profitably. So it does have growth in there. But it's by serving others where people love to come to work and they're motivated and they love to be part of that culture. And therefore, it's a more productive culture. That's amazing. And I know prior to the pandemic, it was in person. I know the quarterly ones are on Zoom now. Is it going to stay virtual or will there be an in-person event coming yeah, back? Or are you, you still know, looking through that? We're looking for to probably staying more virtual. We may do some in-person someday, only because we're 20% international. We had no international when we were in person. And I tell you what, this past year, we had 47 of the Fortune 500 companies, 26 of the Fortune 100 companies, and six of the Fortune 10 companies attend that we never had any of those when it was in person because of those companies are forming Christian ERGs. It may not be a faith-based company like a Hobby Lobby or Chick-fil-A or what we're talking about with Co-Consolidated, but they do have a Christian ERG where they do have this group that's growing organically within those companies. And they take what they learn at T-Factor and they put in Facebook and Google and ExxonMobil and General Electric and so on. Uh, yeah. So it's amazing. That we're That's amazing. Even in the larger companies. And if you work at any of those companies too, you know, we've had, I know we've had Christian Rico, we've had Sue Warnke, the leads of Apple's and Salesforce, employee resource groups, and their amazing outlets to find common community. And well, thank you obviously for spending time with us and for coming to join us. One of the things we love to do at the end of every episode is to invite God's word into the discussion. Although it's been a part of it, we want to be distinct on that and say, you know, we love seeing how God's word transcends our guests and our listeners. And so we would invite you to share something that is stirring in your heart from God's word. Uh, could be something you read this morning, could be something you've meditated on your whole life, but we would love to have that invitation. And we love seeing how his word's always alive. And always moving. Yeah, I tell you what's been heavy on my heart is really Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, do with, with your whole heart and like you're working for the Lord and not for man. And I do believe that. I believe there's so many of us as Christians, and I was one of those at one time. You turn that switch off on Monday morning and not take your faith to work with you. But God really wants to be included in our life, every minute of our life, our family life, our work life, our private life, no matter if you're in an Uber, a, a post office. God wants to be in all parts of our life. I do want to really emphasize that, that it should be God included in every minute of our life, including our work, where we spend most of our time. And I also want to say this. I do feel by being discipled by Ian Howes and then by Chuck Colson, those two, and the impact that's on my life. And I've been discipling guys also starting in prison and have five Timothys now that I'm discipling. So for 24 years, I've been discipling. I do feel that we always need a mentor in our life for our lifetime. And we should be mentoring someone else. I really feel strong. I really believe Second Timothy 2.2, where Paul was pouring into Timothy. I believe we need that in our lifetime, being mentored and also discipling someone else ourselves. Amen. What a great challenge to finish with. And Mark, just uh, so grateful for you taking the time out of your day to share your story. Uh, it sounds like there's a documentary film we'll link to. Of course, we'll link to the Matt Damon film as well. Although I'm sure the man in the documentary is better looking, but you know, we can work through that. We can take an audience poll, but grateful for you. Grateful for your story. Grateful for your faithfulness in the marketplace. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. 
We are grateful for the opportunity to serve the community and see listeners come in from more than 100 countries. Entrepreneurship is often a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. The best way to stay connected is to join a group study with other faith-driven entrepreneurs like yourself. There's no cost, no catch. In person or online, you can meet for an hour a week with your peers from your backyard or the other side of the world. You can also stay connected by signing up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of many of our friends. Executive producer Justin Foreman, intro mixed and arranged by Summer Dregs, audio and editing by Richard Barley. Our theme song is In the House by David Crowder. 